Well, it's great to be back. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word that touches on uh, real life. And we pray today as we engage with what you've got to say that you might be with us, comfort those who are hurting, uh, help those who are lonely, uh, help us all to grow in our faith and trust in you. Amen. Well, love, sex and marriage. I imagine that there are not many sets of three words that might create such a huge variety of emotions and responses from a congregation. Uh, some will be excited and thinking, ooh, particularly, is that really going to be one of the topics coming up, that, that middle word? <laughs> uh, uh, some will be intrigued, you know, we've got all these changes in society, how do we even think about it? We don't know what to do. Uh, I've had conversations with many Christians saying, I, just, I don't even know where to begin in my own thinking, let alone in how do I answer my friends and family and neighbours. Uh, some will hear those three words and all they can think of is the pain. The pain of the past, of loss, of hurt, of damage. Uh, and it might fill them with anxiety about the memories and uh, of the, the consequences of broken relationships. Uh, some will be sad because they've had it and lost it or, or they've never had it but they wanted it. Uh, others will be bored and thinking, what's this got to do with me? Someone said this morning... What could I learn from, uh, from this series? But I want to say that uh, I'm confident that whatever stage of life you're at, you're going to benefit. And we have a very big variety of ages in this room and stages. Uh, you just got to look around the corner if you're over there and you've got to look over there to see the others. Uh, <laughs> um, whether you're dating, married, single, widowed, divorced, content, struggling, confused, whatever, over the next few weeks... God's word is going to speak to you. And even if you think, well, the world of love and sex and marriage, it's all behind me personally, think about all the people that you interact with and influence and encourage. There's other Christians. There's the next generations. There's our children and grandchildren, our neighbours' kids. They're growing up in a world that's totally confused about these issues. And, and the youth of today are being discipled by the internet and by Hollywood, who are horrible disciples. But I also know from my few years in ministry that 90-year-olds can fight in marriages as much as 40-year-olds, and Abraham was still having children at 100, and there can be affairs in nursing homes, and so this one's for all of us. So let's get into it you know, by thinking about love, sex, and marriage in today's world. Our society at the moment... Uh, is in a culture war. It's a war between ideas, a, a war between worldviews, a war between ways of understanding ourselves, our bodies, our love lives, our sex lives, our married lives, our relationships. And it appears, at least from the media, that Christians are losing the war because our views on all these issues are treated as more and more outdated, irrelevant, narrow-minded, or just plain wrong. At its heart, this war is a clash between the idea that anything goes because we can decide what's right and wrong for ourselves and the idea that what God says is best and that he gets to decide what's right and wrong. That, that's the clash. That's the whole battle. 
And we know instinctively which one of those things sounds more attractive, don't we? Uh, Which one feels better? But there's the war. We're told that Christians are living in the past. We're the losers who are living back in the 50s because the 1960s was the revolution. I don't think it was the start of the revolution. It was the outcome of it. But there was a revolution. The 60s became about free love, free sexuality, a free expression, a whole new way of thinking about our bodies, our sexualities, our, our families. And since then, our views of sex before marriage, have, uh, of sex all, all around, have been systematically been challenged and changed. Our views on homosexuality have completely reversed as a society. We've seen the acceptance of divorce as a normal reality, where it was really difficult to do before then and almost never happened. Uh, abortion on demand, the lowering of the age of consent, a whole new way of thinking about adultery and pornography. It's all changed. Oh, we're still horrified by some things, but even then our powers of reason have been changed so that we cannot explain why we feel that some things are right or wrong and why they might make us feel angry or sick or whatever. I mean, the arguments for any of these changes could equally be applied to pedophilia. It's exactly the same arguments, but we go, we, we know that's wrong, but, but, but we can't explain why as a society. And so all these changes happen. Marriage is an afterthought these days. The idea of faithfulness of being committed even in hard circumstances is disappearing. Um, uh, Sex was for those who were committed to each other in marriage and then it became for those who were committed to living together for a while and then it was for those who were committed to going out with each other for a while and now one night stands are almost expected if you do internet dating these days which I haven't had to do for a while. (laughs) Uh, And even casual sex with acquaintances and colleagues at your office with no commitment is being normalised. It's just friends with benefits. Uh, 25% of office workers in Sydney report that they've had sex with someone at work in the workplace, in the office. (laughs) that's, That's bizarre, isn't it? No commitment, no expectation of faithfulness. We just use each other's bodies for sexual release and then go on our way. Primetime TV is full of sex and nudity uh, and swearing. ABC kids shows now, if you watch them, uh, things that are made for 12-year-olds are normalising all kinds of alternate views of sexuality and family. Um, Sex is used to sell soft drink, lawnmowers and toenail clippers. (laughs) The motto of today is, if it feels good, do it. I'm seeing photos pop up on that screen. I'm not sure why. Uh, they're not coming up on this one. Uh, that's not a very interesting photo. Why is there a vase on the back wall? <laughs> now it's a cross. Anyway, very good. <laughs> the motto of today is, if it feels good, do it. Well, even that's a little bit too complicated for today's modern thinker. It's now ju- just do it. <laughs> And you know what? All the evidence points to this sexual revolution being an unmitigated failure. If you were going to do a scientific test on whether it's worked, what would you look at as the results? 
We've got more relationship breakdown. We've got more young women who are sex slaves. We've got more diseases, more abuse. People are more unhappy, lost and confused, more domestic violence. Around half of our marriages in this country, 50% of marriages in Australia end in divorce. Um, uh, there are terrible consequences of that financially. Right? The only person that gets rich out of divorce, well, two people get rich, lawyers and real estate agents. Right? Uh, physically, socially, because people have to move and they break all their connections when they divorce. And, and not just on the people involved, but on the following generations and also on the broader community. There are massive challenges and fallout from it. Children born outside of marriage are five times more likely to be poor and nine times more likely to drop out of school. Uh, 85% of youth with severe behavioural problems have no father in the home. 75% of youth with drug and alcohol problems have no father in the home. 85% of youth in prison have no father in the home. Right? It's not without consequence. But we don't even have to look at the statistics to know the revolution doesn't work. We know it in our own lives, don't we? We know it in our friends' lives and in our neighbours' lives. We can just see the harm. And yet what's so puzzling for our contemporaries is why this new way doesn't work. Why is it that if I just do what feels good or just do it, that I end up unhappy and bring terrible disaster on my love life, my sex life and my marriage? And I want to say from the outset that, that what's on offer in the Bible is a rejection of the ways of the world and a call to accept the ways of our Creator through the gospel of forgiveness and of new birth. God holds out a way for us to, of relating that makes sense, a way of being in family, a way of being in marriage, a way of having sex that's compelling and brings healing and that actually produces the kind of results we want, longer lasting, more satisfying, more enjoyable and profitable relationships. But there's a catch. You can't actually have it without coming to grips with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's a problem for our contemporaries because fundamentally the revolution has all been about rejecting God's Lordship. We've walked away from God who is himself love, the God who invented relationships, the God who created marriage, the one who came up with the idea of sex, Society wants to get rid itself of God and yet somehow maintain these beautiful things that he's given us but use them for a different purpose. We've reinvented the idea of love without reference to God and we've ended up with an insipid, pathetic shadow of the real thing, just a spectre, a ghost that we call love. You, know, you think about how people use the word love. I mean, these guys over here probably say, I love Coke. I love chips, right? right? I know some up the back there say, I love chocolate, <laughs> right? Uh, some might say that, I, I, I love that show that I just went and saw. Uh, what do you mean when you say, you know, I'm excited by it. it? It kind of fired off the dopamine in my head and made me feel happy for a moment. They talk about falling in love and falling out of love as if it's just a hormonal thing. And they talk about making love when really they're just talking about having sex, right? They're 
they've dumbed it down. But here's the thing. The Bible does say that the secret to marriage and the secret to sex, to all relationships, in fact, is love. Hollywood and the radio are right about that, but that love is the answer. But we've got no idea what love is because we've got rid of God. We sing about love, we write about it, we search for it, but we can't find it or pin it down because we've lost the source. Actually, it's interesting. If you thought there's all these love songs, there's even songs about sex, but you don't, you don't find too many songs about, ooh, baby, marry me today. <laughs> like it's not, they're not singing about marriage, uh, except for that really weird song we listened to on holiday on Alison's phone. Oh, I want to do something silly, let's get married because we got drunk tonight, or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, there's a good foundation, isn't it, for marriage? <laughs> well, today we're going to do the groundwork and just set the scene for the rest of the term and see the broad principles that God sets down for love, sex and marriage. We're not going into lots of details today. We're just laying down a foundation. What is God's design for relationships, God's plan for love, sex and marriage. And in the coming weeks, we'll, we'll fill in the gaps and take a look at the specifics like sex and what does that look like in God's ways? What, why do things go wrong according to it? What are God's keys to marriage? Issues like singleness and divorce and widowhood and LGBTI issues and more. But let's just start today with the basics and lay a good foundation. You may have noticed from our two Bible readings, that the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. It begins with one. Having made the heavens and the earth, the Bible spends a whole chapter that we just read, Genesis chapter 2, describing the key human relationship that God planned, how it came to be and what it's about, marriage. But then at the end of the Bible, uh, just as God is about to... Uh, he says he's going to destroy this universe and world and bring a new heavens and new earth. He says there's another marriage. The big one which puts the whole of history into perspective and that is the marriage between Jesus and his people, between Jesus and his church. Revelation 19.6, I heard the voice of the multitude, sound of cascading water and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God the Almighty reigns let us be glad, rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, uh, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. And then the wedding happens in chapter 21, if you want to go and look ahead, Alison's favourite passage. Two great marriages at the beginning and end of the Bible. And what's fascinating is that all through the Bible, the two are inextricably linked together. Human marriage is a picture that God uses to describe his relationship with people and his relationship with people is the model where to follow in human marriage. And so Jesus uh, is the bridegroom, but he also teaches about marriage in his teaching. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, the husband's to love his wife as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love his church? He died for her. 
and the wife is to honour her husband as the church honours Jesus. The, the two marriages right throughout the Bible are linked. The marriage at the beginning and the marriage at the end. And see what I mean about having to come to grips with Jesus. But let's go back to the first marriage and have a look at what God was setting up. And so we're going to be spending most of the rest of the time in Genesis 1 and 2 if you want to go back and have a look there. What's it all about and how do we fit into it? Because God was creating a pattern for us to understand human life and relationships. One of the things I think we've lost in the modern church is this idea of pattern. Right? You know when you make, well actually half the congregation here won't know, but when you go to make a dress... You get a pattern and you trace it out on a piece of paper. Well, so I'm led to believe. I've never done it. <laughs> uh, when you're doing woodwork, the other half of the room, right, you have a pattern, right? Something you're going you're gonna to build and it's going to be this big and that one and so on. And you trace that out and then cut it out with your jigsaw. You don't use your jigsaw on the clothes, I imagine. Uh, probably not going to work so well. But yeah, as a pattern, we, we've lost this idea of pattern. God has built into the world... A certain, he's built it a certain way and because he has built it that way according to a pattern, when he comes throughout the Bible to give teaching, to bring laws and commands and make pronouncements on the various aspects of life, they all follow the pattern that he made at the beginning. For instance, when Jesus was asked about divorce in Matthew 19, his answer is, We'll just go and read Genesis 1 and 2. Look at the original marriage and figure it out from there. We'll come to that in a few weeks' time. And so we have to look at the pattern that God made. Right at the high point of creation, the pinnacle of creation, God made marriage, a man and a woman. And so these first two chapters of the Bible give us insight into how we're made and more importantly, why we were made. If we're not just an accident, not just a bunch of stuff, then the things that we do with each other, the things we do to each other, the things we do with our own bodies, just might matter. And in the Bible, our maker tells us what we were created for. We were created, we were designed for relationships. First and foremost, with him. That's the most important relationship, living under him, for him, for his glory and friendship with him. But secondly, with each other. And particularly as man and woman, we were designed for love, for sex and for marriage. Now, I think that's a surprise to many of our contemporaries that God's not embarrassed by love, by sex or marriage at all. He thinks they're great. He invented them. There are love songs in the Bible. The you know, Song of Solomon's is, is a bizarre book, but you know it even goes into detail about boobs and you know, all kinds of stuff. You know. um, we, we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, that God looks at this world that he's made in all of its beauty and glory and wonder, and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. It's the first indicator that there's something not good in God's world, to be alone. And it's more than just a feeling of loneliness. 
I think it includes that, but it's more than that. It's an incompleteness. That this man actually needs more than himself in life to succeed and to fulfil God's purposes. We men think we're so tough that we don't need help, we don't need anyone else. It's not true. Oh, we can do it for a little bit. We, we, we can you know, survive, but actually it's physically not good for us. Single men die significantly younger than married men. Um, divorced men die younger than those who do not divorce. 180 years of studies have shown that consistently. It's physically not good for men to be alone. Most men die within a year of their wives. Most wives go on for years after their husband has died. <laughs> they don't need us, we need them. <laughs> but also in terms of fulfilling God's purposes, God made them male and female and said, fill the earth and subdue it. How was one bloke ever going to do that by himself? Even the subduing a bit, right? Now, there's a lot of trees out there to fell and a lot of coal to dig up. And, you know, one, you know, it's impossible. And so God forms out of the man's flesh in chapter 2 someone perfectly suited to bring completion to him so that he is not alone. She was formed for him. She was formed from him. She was formed to be his helper, it's described. So he might not be alone and so he'd have a partner in God's work in the world. She's not inferior. She's made of the same stuff. Both of them are human. Both of them are equally loved by God, and together they're created in the image of God back in chapter 1. Both are made, male and female, to be like God, to think and to rule God's world under him, uh, because... Uh, it, it, uh, and to understand and to experiment and to explore. But while both the men and the woman are equally valued by God, made of the same stuff, they're not the same as each other either. She is not another man. There's complementarity. They were made different with different bits and different ways of relating and different emotional makeup and different everything. And that difference is great because it's designed so that the two united can be one new thing. Now, we think mathematically that one plus one should equal what? Two. But in God's arrangement here, one plus one equals one. A greater thing than the two individuals who make up the marriage. Something new, something different, something better. Our society which is caught up in individualism and just doing what feels good will always end up with an answer less than what God designed. For a marriage is not two individuals. It is a new unity, a complex unity made from two unique and very different persons. And that unity finds a delightful physical expression in sexual unity. This marriage relationship is, is the place for sex in God's created order. You see that in the last verse of Genesis 2. Both the man and the wife were naked and felt no shame. 
Right? There's nothing shameful in this beautiful thing that God's made. It's great. They're together enjoying God's good gift. But at the same time, it's also part of the design, the pattern, that this marriage union is an exclusive one. This relationship is something that neither party is to share with any other. It's so strong that it even trumps parent-child relationships, which is something we need to be very clear about. We need to work on our marriages if we're in one and value our marriages, treasure our marriages and guard our marriages even more strongly than our bond with our parents or with our children or grandchildren. Where do I see that? Verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That is, in marriage, you leave one family to start another one. If your parents interfere in your marriage and try to drive a wedge between you, you've got to defend your husband or wife. Um, You've got to be for them before anyone else. If you're an interfering parent or grandparent, you need to give them space or at least wait until you're asked for advice. The time for educating the next generations is before they get married so that they will make a good choice. And as we go on in the Bible, we see the pattern fills out. It includes a bunch of other things. God's intention for marriage is that it's a permanent relationship, uh, but it also is one that ends in death. Uh, widows are not betraying anyone if they do happen to marry again. I know some widows feel like it would be a betrayal. It's not. Right? It's for this life and for while ever both are alive. It, it's the appropriate context for the raising of children. Um, husbands, a part of the pattern, must be willing to give everything, even their lives, for their wives' best. I mean, people will say that the Christian view of marriage and the Bible's view of marriage leads to abuse. No, it doesn't. You cannot think, I'm going to give everything for my wife's best and bash her or come home and stick my feet up on the table and say, where's my beer, honey? And wives must honour and submit to the loving lead of their husbands. That is also part of the pattern that God's given. The Bible's picture of marriage, the pattern, is of a profound relationship which finds its expression between two people who are faithful to each other who are for each other, who give to each other and who treasure each other. They're not living for themselves. They're not doing what feels good. They're not just doing it. They're in in it for the other person, under God, as an act of service and obedience to God and as an act of faith in trusting that God has designed something very, very good and wonderful which he gives for our benefit and is worth protecting. And that's why he set things up the way that he did. But the beginning of the Bible is also incredibly realistic about the problems of marriage too, which stem not from issues originally that the two have with each other, but from the breakdown in the relationship that they both have with God. See, the devil comes along and he tempts them, not with sex, not with other people, but with the chance to become like God and decide for themselves what's good and evil. 
And they think, fantastic, beauty, you know, fancy life where we get to be God. That sounds great. (laughs) They like that idea and they go for it. But no sooner as they kick God off his throne, then they turn on each other. There's shame about their bodies. Why are you naked? Why am I naked? (laughs) Uh, uh, They blame each other. You know, God says, who did this? And Adam said, you, your fault, God, because you made her and she made me do it. <laughs> right? She says, not me, it's that snake you put here, God. <laughs> so there's blame. And they're cursed by God in their marriage to always be fighting for control. It's a punishment that perfectly fits the crime. They wanted to be little gods themselves and make up the rules. Well, who's going to be God when we both have different aims and different ideas and different, you know, what we think is best ahead here. And so we fight and we manipulate each other to get our way. And our relationships end up messed up because you know what? I'm God of my universe and you're God of yours and who's going to win? As long as I enjoy you, because my life is all about enjoyment now, as long as I enjoy you, I'll stick around. But as soon as you stop bringing me pleasure, I'm out of here. Without God, we're left with selfishness and emptiness and and a hollow way of life, which leads to damaged relationships, to lack of trust, to lack of faithfulness, lack of commitment and a lack of love and explains all the chaos of the modern world. But the good news is that God has another purpose, a wonderful purpose seen in the second marriage at the end of the Bible, the marriage of Jesus and his people, the church, the one our lives and relationships and marriages should begin to reflect. Because to secure that marriage, that second marriage, to make that happen, to forge that relationship, God did something truly amazing and selfless. When Jesus came into the world, he showed what true love is. He demonstrated it clearly because Jesus came and he redeemed. He forgave his people who in no way deserved it. He sacrificed himself because we wanted to live for ourselves and to just do it. Jesus died for all that to have us back. He died for his people so that united, restored in Jesus, his people could love as they were designed to love, so that they could love as they have been loved. Jesus demonstrates perfectly what it means to love. And you won't understand love until you know Jesus. But when you do know that love, when you receive it, it changes everything. It gives us humility to realise that I am not God and I don't need to always get my way. It gives us power to forgive even the terribly painful hits as we have been forgiven. It means we're never alone, even if we're single. It also means that the way you express your sexuality, the way you use your body, the way you relate to others, it will be shaped, it will be transformed, it will be radically different from the world around and it will be more satisfying, more fulfilling You'll have much more joy when you put your trust in Jesus 
and so understand what love truly is and understand how loved you truly are. You need to be conformed to the likeness of God's Son. In fact, according to the Bible, that is God's purpose for everything. That's what God is doing. He's conforming people through the cross and through his workiness by his spirit to the likeness of his son who one day we will be there at his wedding as his bride. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your plans and purposes. We pray that we wouldn't be ashamed of them, that we would take them to heart and that we would model in all of our relationships uh, your love towards us in Jesus Father, please forgive us for the way we've hurt others in the past. Help us to deal with the grief that we may have suffered. Help those who are struggling with feelings of loneliness and discontent and frustration that things haven't worked out the way that they wanted and be with those who are married or in relationships and working it out that they might be godly and they might love like the Lord Jesus Christ loved them. Help us always to be willing to forgive and help us to know how to move forward when there's been hurt and damage in the past. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.